The bells of Saint-Anne-d'Auray in Brittany. They've been ringing on and off since last evening. Like the bells of Saint-Anne at Beaupre in Canada, St. Audien's here in Dublin, St. Anne's in Jerusalem, the parish church of the Vatican, and many other shrines all over the world that are named for the Mother of Mary. first visit to Saint Anne d'Auray was in 1964 and that year too the 26th fell on a Sunday. Celebrations began on the Saturday evening and as we drove into the village we passed by old women all in black, young people too and mothers and fathers with their children. Somebody remarked that at home people were preparing to climb Croke Patrick and indeed the quiet Breton countryside was rather like Connacht with straggling hedges, long low farmhouses of local granite and a woman calling to her dog as they brought in the cows for milking. Many of the pilgrims were barefoot and that year some of them had travelled 30 or 40 miles to spend the vigil of the pardon at the shrine. Exiles come home from Paris and other cities just as our own people come back from London and Birmingham for the stations and the night is whiled away with a torchlight procession much singing in Breton and French, rosaries, confession, stations and midnight mass. For here, as at Lourdes and Knock, the mass is at the heart of all the jubilations in honour of St Anne. We arrived as the torchlight procession moved slowly through the Carmelite cloisters. These date back to the 17th century, when the Carmelites looked after the shrine up to the revolution. Next morning, in glorious sunshine, there were about 50,000 people in the square outside the Basilica for the open-air pontifical high mass. Last night, there had been the dusk and the flicker of candles, the barefoot women in black, a general muting of sound and shade. But today all was colour and brightness and movement and music. The women had changed from their sombre clothes into beautiful traditional costumes. Long full skirts of black velvet or satin with incredible embroidery and their national headdress. Most of these are elaborate confections of white lace. 
some tall and narrow, some winged, like the bonnets the French Sisters of Charity wore long ago, and some are just flat squares or circles of stiff net. Each parish has a different style, so if you're experienced enough, you can tell where any woman comes from by her coif. The men wear knee breeches, black velvet cutaway coats with silver buttons, and wide-brimmed hats with long velvet streamers. The banners they carry are marvellous examples of needlework, and with all the Breton bishops and many visiting dignitaries in their ceremonial robes, it makes a really unforgettable sight. Then, after Mass, the people visit the war memorial. The names of a quarter million Bretons lost in the First World War are inscribed, parish by parish, on the walls of the Great Square. Or they drink at St Anne's Fountain, or climb the Scala Sancta on their knees. And then they picnic on the grass, and later on they'll dance on the streets outside to the sound of the bigno, the Breton bagpipes. For, as one man said to me, up to the end of the High Mass it is religious, after that, it is folklorique. It was that year in Brittany that I began to wonder about St. Anne. I'd always taken it for granted that nothing was known about her, not even a word in the Gospels, except, of course, that she was the mother of Mary, Joseph's mother-in-law, and Christ's grandmother, which makes her the most favourite woman next to Mary in all the history of salvation. The Bretons, of course, talk about her as if she was one of the neighbours, but apart from the folklorique, as the man said, I began to wonder, and since then I've been picking up bits and pieces of information about her, and finally I've got round to gathering it all more or less together. We'll come back to Brittany presently, but first, to begin the story of St Anne in the proper place, we must go east to Palestine. Nothing about her in the Gospels, not even her name, that's agreed. But there are many ancient books from early Christian times that the Church doesn't recognise as inspired, but that doesn't mean that they're not genuine historical documents. And one of these was written by St James the Less, who would have been related to the Holy Family, and in this we find something about the grandparents of Jesus. They were rich, pious and childless, and this last was a great sorrow to them especially as they were of the royal house of David, from which they knew the Messiah was to come. So, one fine day, when Joachim went to offer sacrifice in the temple, he was mocked by a priest, who said that, obviously, Joachim was not favoured by God, and so he was unworthy to enter the holy place. Joachim took this very hard, and instead of going home, he went out to the mountains to rest with the Lord in prayer. Meanwhile, Anne heard what had happened. Even then, bad news travelled fast. And she too wept and prayed 
and promised God that if he sent her a child, it would be dedicated entirely to him. And presently God sent an angel to comfort them both and to say that Anne would have a child who would be blessed by all the world. So Joachim started out for home just as Anne set forth to meet him and they met and embraced full of joy at the Golden Gate. This meeting has inspired many artists. There's a lovely wall plaque of it in wood with rich dark colours and gilding out at the communication centre in Town, And in the Basilica at Orway, there's a stained glass window, one of a series showing incidents in the life of St Anne. But here is Michael Wynne to tell us something about St Anne in art. In works of art, it is rare to find images of St Anne standing alone. Other saints are frequently depicted standing on a pedestal in a niche or in a landscape or other setting, all on their own. But St. Anne rarely appears thus. In fact, she is most frequently portrayed in what is known as a Trinitarian group, because of the presence of the Blessed Virgin and the Christ Child. To this type of image of St. Anne, one can add a fourth personage to make up a quartet, so to speak, namely St. John the Baptist. Many of the representations of the story of St. Anne are taken from the anecdotes of the apocryphal Gospels, especially from the proto-Gospel of James and the pseudo-Gospel of Matthew. Other stories about St. Anne were apparently invented by the Carmelites in the 15th century they had a particular devotion to St. Anne. That's very interesting because the Carmelites claim to have brought the devotion to uh, Europe in the time of the the Crusades. But the Trinitarian image that you were talking about, uh, I've seen a lot of very old wood statues in Brittany with St. Anne, Our Lady in her lap, and the infant Jesus then in her lap. Yes, this is quite frequent indeed and uh, is also borne out in uh, the images one sees in oil paintings. And what you say about the Carmelites being particularly devoted to St. Anne, there is a very wonderful series in the Carmelite Church in Frankfurt where almost every scene from the life of St. Anne is depicted on the altarpiece which was carved at the back of one of the main altars by a Brussels sculptor especially for the Carmelites. From art and its images, one can learn much about the history and tradition of saints or other people, and in fact one thereby consolidates the knowledge that one has acquired either by reading in books or by oral tradition. For example, concerning the death of St. Anne, there are two particular traditions which have lived on. One which says that she died when Christ was a child, a very young child at that. And the second one which says that she died when Christ was already a grown man, perhaps 18 or 19 years of age. And both these types of tradition about about the date of the death of St. Anne are born out in 
artistic images. And in fact, I know one 16th century Dutch painting representing one tradition and a Flemish one from the neighbouring country representing the other tradition at the very same time. In Ireland, there was very little cult to St. Anne. Nonetheless, Irish artists had occasionally opportunity, it seems more in recent times, to depict St. Anne. Evie Holm, that superb stained-glass artist who died in 1955, did a delightful little panel of St. Anne, but also did a window in which St. Anne is to be found at Bournemouth in England. A replica by Evie Holm, again, of that Bournemouth window is in St. Anne's Cancer Hospital at Northbrook Road. And another important Irish commission for a work of art specifically related to St. Anne is Michael Healy's window for St. John's in Newfoundland. Michael Healy, like Evie Hone, worked in the Tower of Glass studio and was, uh, in fact, a teacher of Evie Hone. And his St. Anne window is one of his most beautiful works indeed. He also did another stained glass window of St. Anne for the Sacred Heart Convent in Boston. I wonder how did he come to do one for Newfoundland? Well, I'm sure it's due to the fact that over there there was a very strong desire to honour St. Anne. They had a flourishing cult to her at Beaupre, whereas in Ireland there was nothing similar. Yes, of course. And in works of art, fashions come and fashions go, and it seems that at the moment all iconography of saints, all the stories of the saints are swept out, but perhaps in another decade or at least in another generation one will see the cult of the saints coming back into vogue once more. Michael Wynne, Assistant Director of the National Gallery. The name Anne means grace or precious, and devotion to her was general in the East, not surprisingly, long before it was in the West. We know of a church in honour of St. Anne in Constantinople in the 6th century and one over her tomb in Jerusalem in the 7th. The earliest hymn in her honour is in Greek by St. Romanus of the 5th century and in the Greek Orthodox Church they keep three feasts in her honour. Her conception on the 9th of December, the repose of Anne on the 25th of July and the forefathers of God, Joachim and Anne, on the 9th of September. Her feast was one of obligation in England and Ireland from the 14th century. Up to now we've kept the feast of Joachim separately on the 16th of August, but one of the recent changes in the calendar of saints puts him back where he belongs, by the side of his wife, so that the 26th of July is to be the feast of Joachim and Anne for the future. Tradition has it that St Anne died in Jerusalem and that the present church of St Anne was built on the site of the family home, that is, over the birthplace of Our Lady. Pat O'Donnell spent two years with the United Nations forces in the Holy Land and I asked him to describe it for us. When you go up the steep road from Gethsemane towards the old city, uh, you go enter by St. Stephen's Gate and St. Anne's is the first church you see on the right. So that's what my natural curiosity was to go in there to St. Anne's. 
That's somewhere near the beginning of the Via Dolorosa, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's just off the beginning of the Via Dolorosa. Well, the church, isn't it supposed to be built over the place where Our Lady was born? Yes, uh, that is true. It's supposed to have been uh, the uh, birthplace of Our Lady and uh, Joachim and Anna are supposed to have lived there. But, of course, it's very much changed now. Is there any trace of the first, the old dwelling place? Well, uh, there is the crypt, and many churches have been uh, built over the crypt, and this Crusader church, which is there now, is, is the last of them. Uh, in, the, in the crypt, uh, it's um, hollowed out of the rock, just like uh, the cave in Bethlehem. And, in fact, like the caves of uh, many houses of the poorer people in the country districts. And uh, there's a bare stone altar uh, in this crypt, and under the altar is uh, a representation of uh, uh, the Blessed Virgin uh, as, a, as a baby. And uh, she seems to be smiling on, on the human race there. Well, is it greatly embellished with... Um hanging lamps and ornaments of all kinds, like uh, Bethlehem? Well, no. No, it's very bare and, and simple, just as the churches above it. In fact, uh, there are no windows uh, except high up under the roof. In the place of windows, there are uh, frescoes, and it's a very austere and beautiful place. And then out at the back... Isn't there a courtyard? Yes, there is a, a, f a flagged courtyard and uh, there is a very old uh, pepper tree uh, shading it. A tradition says that this uh, pepper tree grew in the garden of uh, Joachim and Anna. And uh, there's a well there also, which uh, is a similar tradition. That's like the olive trees in Gethsemane, don't they tell you? That even if they're not the same trees, that the root system oh, yes, is the same. That, that is quite true. And isn't there a legend about how St. Anne and St. Joachim met? Yes, uh, there is. Uh, a sheep uh, for sacrifice in the temple uh, became lost. Uh, they lived um, between the sheep market and the temple, and uh, it is said that both of them uh, set about searching for the sheep uh, separately, and they found it at the same time together in, in a cave here. And, and that's uh, how they the, met. This, uh, their happiness uh, is how they... Well, it, is the um, church, the Crusader church, in uh, Christian hands at present? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, uh, through many difficulties, the Christians continued to venerate uh, the site, but it uh, changed hands. Uh, but um, after the Crimean War, Napoleon III uh, asked the Turks for it, and... Uh, he restored the area and gave it to the White Fathers, who run a seminary still there. It seems to be generally agreed that the body of St. Anne didn't remain in its original tomb in Jerusalem. And in Provence, in the south of France, I found a tradition that it was brought there by the first Christians. There was constant traffic at that time between the Middle East and Marseille. And the story goes that Lazarus, Mary Magdalene and Martha came there in a group, which included Mary Jacobe and Mary Salome. And this was quite soon after Christ's death and resurrection. The arrival of the Three Marys is still commemorated in a place that's named the Three Holy Marys of the Sea, and by at least two pardons every year.
One of their companions, Sarah, is the patron of the gypsies. And so all the gypsies foregather at the May Pardon to do her honour and to choose their queen for the year. At the time, everyone knew there would be persecution in Palestine and, of course, much desecration of holy places. So it seems that Lazarus and his companions decided to bring the remains of St Anne with them. But even on the coast of France, would they be safe? Perhaps not. So they decided to go inland to Apt, which is well protected by mountains. And the bishop there was a friend, so they committed their treasure to his care. And he placed it in the underground cave or catacomb where the Christian community used to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But when the barbarians overran that part of France, the local people walled up the tomb to prevent desecration. And just in time, too, before the whole town was razed to the ground. For a long time after that, nobody knew where the relics of St Anne were. And when Charles Martel and Charlemagne had driven the invaders back across the Pyrenees, this was the only shadow in the general rejoicing. Churches and monasteries were being rebuilt, and an ancient document goes on with the story. It is related that Charlemagne, having concluded one of his many expeditions, had returned to Apt, but it is not known whether his visit was for the purpose of placing his sword beside that of Caesar on the coat of arms of Apt, or of being present at the consecration of the cathedral. As his church was one of the forty churches he had promised to build if victory crowned his expeditions, it would seem that Providence wished him to be present as a witness of the miraculous discovery of the relics. On Easter Sunday, in the year 792, the emperor, assisted at a divine office, surrounded by the faithful and his knights. Suddenly, a youth, blind and a deaf-mute from birth, son of a lord of the place named Casaneuve de Simeon, came into the church like one inspired and led by an invisible hand. The congregation, evidently also inspired, immediately rose up instinctively and followed him to the steps of the sanctuary. By gestures, he requested a stone slab to be lifted and the place to be dug up. The emperor, who shared in the general excitement, ordered the boy to be obeyed. Accordingly, the stone was removed and digging was begun, and the soon the crypt was discovered where lay the relics and whence bright rays issued. Through an opening, the cypress coffer was seen, and a bright light illumined the place. Then a prodigy was witnessed, which is worthy of being recalled side by side with that by which the true cross was recognized by St. Helena. The young man, suddenly cured, cried out, It is she! And Charlemagne, greatly excited, also cried out, It is she! The same words were repeated by the people who fell on their knees and broke into tears. In fact, in the coffer was found a winding sheet that enclosed the relics on which were inscribed those words that dispelled all doubts. Here lies the body of St. Anne, mother of the glorious Virgin Mary. Naturally, these events stirred up devotion to St. Anne, 
and as there was constant traffic by sea between the south of France and Britain, the cult was brought home by sailors to England. But the next thing was the Angles and Saxons invaded Britain in the 5th century and the natives fled to Wales and Cornwall and Armorica, which we now call Brittany. There they settled mainly in two maritime areas, around La Palou in the northwest and Ore on the Gulf of Morbihan in the southwest. And to this day, these are two main strongholds of devotion to St. Anne in Brittany. The history of the shrine at Ore is pretty well documented, but La Palou seems to be shrouded in legend. They have a great pardon there at the end of August. The boats are blessed, for St. Anne is the protector of mariners, and the widows of the sea come in a mourning procession to pray for their dead. Alton Mackin talked to a Breton from that area and he asked him first to explain what a pardon is. The word uh, pardon in Britain uh, means uh, forgive me, you know, and uh, originally the people uh, coming to uh, this kind of devotion were asking uh, to be forgiven for their sins. Um, <clears throat> Now, uh, bit by bit, I suppose that uh, the, the farmers were asking better weather for their crops, the fishermen better fishing and uh, asking protection from the sea. And uh, nowadays, uh, I don't think that the meaning of the pardons and of any St. Anne's festival in Brittany, um, I don't think that... Uh, their people are asking for being forgiven. They are just uh, enjoying devotion and uh, praying for their, for their f future, you know, but there is no sense of culpability as before going with it. But not so long ago, uh, till the end of the 19th century, people were coming uh, uh, to the festival, to the pardon again, and uh, in saint la palue for example, the, uh, this was lasting for three days and three nights, and they brought with them some something like tents. You know, they were pitching tents around the church, or uh, they were coming in uh, carriage carriages. You know, and um, so they were staying there for three full days and nights. And uh, did they abstain from food? And yes, that's right. And drink that's and right. So yeah. very very often. And uh, they were turning 
around the church on their knees, you know. A procession, a kind of a procession. Kind yeah. of a procession, but asking to be forgiven for the sins, you know. Yeah. And there is another place uh, near Saint Anne la Palu, near Le Cronan. And uh, that place is called La Troménie. It's a it's a small hill, and uh, this is funny because he has, he has got some connection with Ireland. Uh, Locronan means Loch Ronan, you know, and Ronan is an Irish is an Irish saint which is supposed to have come to Brittany uh, in the uh, early monastery days. Yeah, that's right for uh, uh, evangelization, you yeah, know. Yeah, and uh, there is a small hill so near Locronan, and uh, the people had to climb that hill on their knees, which was not very easy, you know. Mm. And uh, so, uh, I told you that because I think that in the beginning, this, this uh, festival were more involved with... Um, with Penance and uh, pardon and, and sacrifice. Right, yeah, and, yeah, sacrifice, yeah. than with uh, anything else. Why is it called Saint Anne la Palou? Uh, because uh, Palou... Uh, Arbalud in Britain means uh, a kind of a marsh, you know, and um, <clears throat> I suppose that it, it, it was uh, formerly a quite marshy place, you know, and uh, un paludier too in French. I don't know the word in, in Britain, but I know that un paludier in French, and, and the word paludier is coming from the, Br the Britain palud, you know. The word paludier in French means a fellow who is walking on the shore, you know, and uh, collecting, uh, uh, you know, seaweeds or shells or, or things like that, you know. And uh, <coughs> it could be possible that uh, when that this devotion started in that particular place, all the people who were committed with it were people walking on, on, on the seashore, you know. I suppose so. Yeah. What about the thing you were saying about when the some people used to bring cattle? Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is a, this is this is a, 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 another story, you know. But it's very interesting to um, it 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 happened it, it occurred especially in the northern part of Brittany in Lyon. Um, by stormy days, uh, they were bringing all the, all the people in the village, you know, were gathering with cattle, and they. They were going to the to the shore, you know, uh, especially where you had peninsulas, you know, and uh, rocks uh, scattering around. And uh, on on the horns of the cutter, they put the um, uh, lights. Lights, yeah. you know. And so uh, the poor the, the 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 poor boat was looking for some shelter, you know, uh, looking at at, at these these lights, told that it was. It was safe, and there was harbor, uh, you know, yeah. in that direction, and it was coming right into the rocks. And uh, when the boat was uh, sinking, uh, when, when the boat was no, not sinking, but uh, was sunk, uh, sunk, yeah. and uh, I mean um, uh, broken on the rocks, you know, th all these people were coming with knives, and uh, you know, they, they they were killing people and and taking all the goods from the from from the boat, you know. And that tradition, um, I, I am sure, of it because there is an, 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 an example in Brittany, I think, in 1894. Wreckers in Brittany. I often wondered why they had so many pardons there. Well, next door to Brittany on the east is Normandy. And by the time the Normans crossed the English Channel to conquer the Anglo-Saxons, 
they too were very devoted to St. Anne. So that in no time at all you had chapels and chantries and guilds of St. Anne all over England. Many of these were richly adorned and endowed by grateful clients. And they were zealously stripped by the agents of Henry VIII. At Buxton, near Burton and Trent, there was a well and chapel of St. Anne. And William Bassett, knight, reported to Henry's vice-regent, Lord Cromwell. Right, honourable and my inner special good lord, according to my bounden duty and the tenor of your lordship's letters lately to me directed, I have sent to your lordship by this bearer, my brother, Francis Bassett, the images of St. Anne of Buxton and St. Andrew of Burton-upon-Trent, which images I did take from the places where they did stand and brought them to my house within 48 hours after the contemplation of your said lordship's letter, in as sober a manner as my little and rude will would serve me. And, for that there should be no more idolatry and superstition there used, I did not only deface the tabernacles and places where they did stand, but also did take away crutches, shirts and shifts with wax offered, being things that allure and entice the ignorant to the said offering. Also giving the keepers of both places orders that no more offerings should be made in those places till the king's pleasure and your lordship's be further known in that behalf. My lord, I have locked up and sealed the bards and wells of Buxton that none shall enter to wash there till your lordship's pleasure be further known, etc. William Bassett, Knight, to Lord Cromwell. The Normans had brought their devotion to St. Anne to Ireland too, and when they built a church in honour of their patron, St. Odian, in High Street, they made provision for a chantry in her honour. But of course, St. Anne was known and loved in this country long before the Normans were ever heard of. A Mayo woman at Cushion, near Westport, told me how the local well of St. Anne came to be named. Well, I suppose that in the olden days, that St. Patrick was travelling through the country and that he named all those wells, called them after a saint, so that this well in Cushion was called uh, St. Anne's Well. That's tradition. We don't know how true it can be. And does anyone go there now on St. Anne's Day, on the 26th of July? Well, they usually go at all times during the year. I mean, say, more over in the summer and uh, harvest time because it's easier to get to the well then than it would be in the winter, you see. And they usually go on all, on any days, it suits them, and they probably nearly all usually go on St. Anne's Day. That's those people that know the 26th of July. Well, did you ever get any favourite there? Well, an, an old woman in the village is a station there for a relative of mine, and uh, it seemed to have its own effects that he was, you know, cured and all that from an eye infection and uh, a chest, a sore chest. Was she supposed to be good for um, curing sore eyes and blindness? Well, yes. In fact, mostly sore eyes and blindness. But people put great faith in the the saint and going there and doing stations. And uh, they seemed to get the benefit of them. At least they knew that it was from there they got those benefits. 
And you were telling me another story about doing a very long session of praying for somebody. Will you tell me that again? Well, it was a little girl that had a sore, sore on her face. The 15-day station done for her, and she said that, and I mean said that she, she got cured there, and uh, she went to America, and she believed that it was the 15-day station that was her cause of her getting healed, getting her face healed. Was there ever a fish in the well? Yes, there was supposed to be a fish in the well, and the people that got the benefit of the station this is the saw the water bubbling, and that was a sign that there was a little fish in this. They got the benefit of the station. And they got the request? And they got the request, yes. But that was a sign that they got the request. There was a little fish in the well, and he'd, the water would bubble. And did you ever see the fish? Well, I didn't. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't good enough, I suppose, to see him. <laughs> did you ever see the fish, Mrs. Berry? No, I didn't. <laughs> Mrs. Annie Berry is a grandmother many times over, and she's been going to the well since she was a child. Well, I held her when I was young. About a man who was in America, he lost his sight, and he had a dream. If he came to this well and done a station, he'd get his sight back, and he did. And he was cured. I cannot tell you his name, but he must be from the, the locality. And this was when you were young? Yes. And what stations did you do there? You have to start first and say the creed. Say one or further, three Hail Marys. Then go round the well seven times, praying all the time. And you go in then and kneel at the well, I say one or feather, and three hail mirrors, and bless yourself with the water. And do you go there any time of the year? Any time of the year. Is there anything special on the Feast of St. Anne? Well, I cannot tell you, because I'm old now, and I, we used to go very often when my children were small. If they were sick, I'd promise a station, I'd go and I'd do it. And when my husband had an accident when he was in Dublin hospital, I done the station. And thanks be to God, although he lost his sight of the eye, he was none the worse of the accident. Well, was St. Anne thought to be good for curing people of illnesses or was she patron of anything else in particular? Because yes. in other parts of the world, they prayed to her if they haven't got children, married people who haven't got children because she's supposed to have had her child very late in life. You I never said, heard that? I did hear that. Did you? Yeah. Mm. But there was a woman in L, and I cannot say now was it how she lost her sight, but anyhow, whatever she was, ill enough, she was cured, and she put up a, a statue in of St. Anne at the well, and there was a bush growing over it, and she got the bush removed and a nice wall around it, and it was made secure like that cattle wouldn't go into it. And I have gone there, I think, twice since, and I done a station for a grandchild of my own, and thanks be to God, he was cured. And I light a candle every Tuesday in honour of St. Anne.
Alton Macken drove me to Bullion and Nullog in Woodford County Galway one day last week and Mrs D. Lecalnan brought us to see the local well. I was growing up and as the years went by, first I heard that it was uh, St. Anne was known to appear there or supposed to and uh, that she left the print of her foot there someplace. But I do believe the well never goes dry and it's only just a small place. Well, Father Shield told us that there's an Anne in every family in the parish. Well, there is. I have an Anne. That's probably devotion to St. Anne yes, that yes, goes back a yes, long yes, way. Yes, I have yeah. an Anne. And do you pray to St. Anne yourself? Oh, I certainly do. I certainly do. And uh, in fact, I'd have prayed to her sometimes and I wouldn't know I was praying at all until I had it finished. I have a great devotion to St. Anne. And my children had. And we talked to a neighbour of Mrs. Cannon's. They claim there's cures in it too for warts and, and different things. Like, and, and, and there's a little churchyard beside it too. There was lots of people at the time of the famine buried in that churchyard. And I saw... Then, then again, there used to be uh, babies that wouldn't be baptised, taken and buried in it. I saw, I saw, I saw a person buried myself now. When I was young. But not... Not for, for the last 50 years, mind. Uh, what exactly used to do when you went to St Anne's Well, We'd say a prayer. And we'd wash our hands in, in, the, in the spring. If we had warts, mind. Warts, generally, we used to go for. Was there patterns? There was patterns. There? That's what I'm telling you about the patterns. That, that they used to come and have a big pattern there. And um, the... They used to come, and and parties had come, and if the Sarnese girl, that stale her away, indeed. So the priest put it down. <laughs> well, they had records in Brittany, and now we have kidnappers in Connacht. At Tyrannia, near Carraro, the Lower Alton Macken, Leshenahar Flannery, Ags Lebani Hunnere, and Tahar Flannery Erdush. Kuplebina, and Bonio football team in Shachagas. Finde Shandy Nilog, we should take a foot nive on a wash or a team. Which you put on Jawa Jan Lodge or Scrochiana, Lebliente. Well, when you were still fair show, Lahanikam, where you want. I guess Hinch or Lacey, I Agosanic <laughs> She says that a beggar man from Clare was cured at the well of St. Anne and left his crutches in thanksgiving. But times were bad, and after a while, he came back for them. 
and if he did, he got crippled again. Laurison Chinle Shana Sulwan on Chimishun Beladese, Agus Defries de Wilmoran Padrika the Nevana Satana Railing. Shata Town of Oinakahare, Pader Nu Orha Eginevam Tram Lee, that's got Via Hagala, Ergin and the Radish of Hola, Ganel for Draw Hire of Dove, Augustia Paderoko Eginevam Tram Leeshen, Augustana Louitown, Marsha. Anna, Maher Vire, Mire, Maher Christ, Eilish Dabracher, Maher on Baste, Shanid and Trur, Achirim, Idarme, Anocht, Agas Gogtown Blian, or Anocht, Idarme, Agas and Traumli, Emanimanaher, Agas and Vic, Agas and Spitney of a man. That was a prayer against um, nightmares. Nightmares, yes. People were afraid, you see, of nightmares, bad dreams. So they used to traditionally recite this prayer calling on St. Anne, the mother of Mary, Mary, the mother of Christ, and so on, and putting the three of them, St. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, putting the three of those between the sleeper and the nightmare. I must say, I went down through the list that you gave me of places where St. Anne was venerated, and I rang... I couldn't tell you how many priests all over the country in these parishes, and not yes. one of them knew a thing about it. Don't you think it's a pity that we don't make more of these traditional places? They may not be holy places, really. Yes. They may be more connected with superstition, but touristically even. Um, in Brittany, for instance, you'd always get a pamphlet or a picture of the saint with the story on the back of it, or you'd always have it signposted anywhere you go. Oh, surely. I think like it has been, I have indeed written and spoken about this many a time, about the neglect of our holy wells and of its uh, traditional place in local custom and local life. I remember Owen McNeil, God rest him, wrote an article in the Cleve Solar Show 60, 70 years ago about this particular thing. I came across it one time because... I think, you see, that country life in Ireland was rich in many ways in olden times. You had song, you had dance, and you had games and amusement, social contacts, which have now disappeared. And I think that the patterns were a great occasion for festivity, for meeting friends, for enjoying oneself, for prayer... They were based very strongly on the local country life and on Catholic religion as the people knew it traditionally. And then uh, the church was inclined to criticize patterns and so on. And I think, of course, they had their good reasons for it, that when the rounds had been paid at the Holy Well, that people went to enjoy themselves by drinking and dancing and so on, and very often... Uh, fights and faction fights came as a result and gave a kind of scandal in the neighbourhood so that uh, the church gradually more or less ignored them if they didn't actually condemn them openly. I remember uh, Dr Bray, the famous Archbishop of Castle and Emily, around 160 years ago issued a famous pastoral condemning all the patterns in his archdiocese there and under the pain of excommunication people were forbidden 
to either attend the pattern or have anything to do by selling sweets or apples or anything, or even looking from the, their house at people on their way to the pattern. He was a very strong-minded bishop, and uh, it shows how seriously he took the scandal of faction fighting at the local patterns. Really? But indeed, I may say that although that was 160 years ago, some of those patterns were quite active 20 years ago. He didn't actually quench them forever. Maybe they do better in Brittany, where all the bishops from the five dioceses yes. and all the abbots and church dignitaries yes. come. I think the church really should have taken them over. As I say, they were based in local tradition. The church should have taken them over and improved them and disciplined them and put order into them, advised people as to enjoy yourselves, yes, but only up to a certain point. Don't give scandal. In Yall, Sean, wasn't there a, a very famous Anglo-Norman settlement? Yes, indeed. I came across an article about that the other day in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries, one of the very, very early volumes, that when the, the Normans, as we know, came to Ireland in 1169 or 70, and a group of them came from Bristol, in the west of England and settled in Yall, uh, a great many of them. And there were traders and adventurers and ships used to come into Yall Harbour with food and goods for them. And the Anglo-Normans in Yall built a lighthouse on one of the headlands at the entrance to the harbour and very cleverly, so that the lighthouse wouldn't be interfered with by the local people who were the enemies of the new settlers, the Anglo-Normans put nuns into a nunnery, which they built beside the lighthouse, and got the nuns to tend the lighthouse and look after it. And the local people never <laughs> interfered with the lights under these brave and active nuns. And the ruins of the nunnery are still there, you know. And it was very interesting that uh, the sale in Bristol, from which these Anglo-Normans came to Yahal, there was a great cult of St. Anne there, indeed there were a number of holy wells and churches outside Bristol in Somerset uh, dedicated to her. And when sailors came ashore there, they were mostly Catholics, of course, at that time, they would have to attend Mass in the local church in thanksgiving for their safe voyage, and they would have to present candles to the church in honour of St. Anne, their patroness. That was Sean O'Sullivan of the Folklore Commission. But is there any devotion nowadays to St. Anne, especially in urban areas? Trassa Davidson went to the Tuesday devotions in High Street in Dublin and talked to some of the people there. There's a Greek tradition in Dublin, devotion to St. Anne. She's the grandmother of Jesus and the mother of Mary, so I think she's a part of that holy family. But years ago, when the trams were running, I'm dating myself now, <laughs> um, it used to be packed people coming to the devotions. And it was always a cant, um, oh, um, we'd come on up to St. Anne to pray for a man. Good St. Anne, send me a man. And there used to be a wishy conductor on the um, tram line, and he used to always say, when come to the stopping place, now, ladies, St. Anne, and they'd all get out real mortified. <laughs> <laughs> I had always devotion to St. Anne, and 
coming here for the last three or four years. I had used to come here before. What attracted me to come here was I seen a notice here about that, the great devotion that used to be here in the Middle Ages uh, since the Norman days. And so I, I thought it was an awful pity how very few come to this church. And Tracy Davidson's next stop was a nursery school that's called St Anne's. And she asked the principal if she had any special devotion to her. Yes, that's quite true. And at the beginning of each term, I always told them about St Anne and the story about the little statue. Now, George, tell me, what's the name of the school? St Anne. Do you know, George, why it was called St Anne's? Because this lady, um, she was um, in the school, and this lady came to her one day, and she said, if you call the school St. Dan, I'll give you thousands of chairs. And so then she said, I'll think about that later. So then she thought about it, and um, then this parcel came to her. The postman came, and he knocked at the door, and then um, he said, here's the parcel. And so... Um, Mrs. Russell took it to and parcel and she opened it and, she, and then um, something fell out and it, it broke over the statue of St. Dan. She said, I'll definitely call this school St. Dan. Hello, Peter. What age are you, Peter? Six and three quarters. Six and three quarters. That means nearly seven, does it? Yeah. Do you ever say a prayer to St. Dan? Yes. Do you know what a saint is? No. You don't know what a saint is. Where do they live? Up in heaven. Do you ever pray to St. Anne? No, but we know a song about St. Anne. You do? Will you sing the song for me? I don't know the words properly. Don't know the words. Well, supposing you all sing it together. Would that do? Yes. Okay. The statue in George's story there had come from Beaupre in Canada. But before we trace the history of that shrine, we have to go back to Saint Anne d'Auré. Father Jean-Paul Carrel is from near Auré, and he tells the story of the shrine. Alan Youssef comes from Campere, where they make the traditional statue of Saint Anne that you see over every doorway almost in Morbihan, and he interprets... Father Carrel tells us what happened in the year 1624. There was a small farmer named Yves Nicolazic living there with his wife. He couldn't read or write, and he spoke only Breton. He was just and hard-working, very devout and greatly respected by his neighbours for his common sense and the good life he'd left, he led. He was 34 years of age and had been married for 12 years but had no family. One day he went to the local priest and said that St. Anne had appeared to him and desired him to tell them that God wished her to be honoured again in this place. A chapel named after her, the first in the country, had been burned down she was very precise about the time, 924 years and six months ago, 
and now the time had come to rebuild it. The priest laughed at him and told him to have sense. So he asked St. Anne for a sign that would convince them. One night in 1625, she led him and some of his neighbors to a field and told them to dig in a certain spot. And after a while, they unearthed a, an ancient wooden statue of St. Anne. Even this didn't convince the priests. The curate was said to have knocked over the statue, and he sickened and died within a short, a short time. The parish priest got paralysis, but when he repented, he was cured. Nikolazic and his neighbors built the first little church, and after the bishops had investigated the story and decided that he was not an impostor and that it was expedient to let him do so. And that's Alan Husaf, and he looks as if he didn't believe a word of it. Well, I wouldn't say I don't believe a word of it, but uh, I have uh, read other interpretations of the story. Maybe uh, the people who who have recorded this interpretation are themselves uh, too much given to scepticism, but uh, it would have been uh, the statue of uh, some ancient Celtic or Roman deity. Well, we continue that argument after the programme. Shortly after the events in Norway, so the story goes, a Breton boat was foundering in a terrible storm in the St. Lawrence River in Canada, and the sailors promised St. Anne that they'd build her a shrine if she saved them. They landed safely on a beautiful green field, which they christened Beaupre, and I think everyone in Ireland knows all about the magnificent shrine which is taken care of by the Redemptorists there. Palestine to Provence, Brittany to Buxton and Beaupre. I'm not suggesting these are the only roads the love of St. Anne has travelled. Neither can I separate the fact from the folklorique, or the history from the hysterical. We began with the bells of St. Anne d'Orway, and we end with those of Beaupre in Canada. <laughs> 